0: probably one of the most recognized lines in literary history. Of course, it comes from Herman Melville's Moby Dick. The story is based on actual real-life events of the whaling ship, the Essex, in the 1820s, um, whose vessel was destroyed and its crew was scattered uh, and left abandoned at sea by this rogue whale. Now, the story of of Moby Dick is, is a deeper psychological one because It it, it takes you into the life of this character, Captain Ahab. And really, the the significance of this story is you're not really sure who is the true villain of the story. Is it Ahab, or is it the whale? You see, we learn from Ahab that he is hell-bent on this mission of killing this whale, even if it's to the neglect of everyone else around him. His hubris and his ego is so inflated that it eventually leads to his demise. Spoiler alert if you didn't read that book that came out, you know, a really long time ago. <laughs> you know, we've been talking about villains and the Bible's villains for the last couple of weeks. The Bible's filled with villains. Um, you've got Jonah, you've got Judas, you've got Joseph's brothers, you've got Jezebel. There's this clear line in the sand of who is right and who is wrong. What is good and what is evil, what is hero and what's villain? And while the Bible might talk about things like Saul or Absalom, what the Bible is really talking about is the core root of what humanity struggles with, which is fear and rejection and isolation and control and oppression and manipulation. And last week we looked at this strong desire to to comfort and control in our lives. And we live in a world that is susceptible to these things, and what we don't realize is that these obstacles that we face, just like those who came before us, Often it is preventing us from living out the life that God truly desires for us. And so we're in this series, dumping Jezebel, boldly stepping beyond life's greatest obstacles, and for this we're gonna look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse one. Now, in this story is the great king of Israel, David, the giant slayer. Except this time, well, we'll David, we'll, we'll just see from our passage. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reboam. but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. Now, what we need to understand for the context of this story is that David is in the prime of his rule as the king. He is the giant slayer. He has evaded the murderous plots of King Saul. He's become the king of the northern tribe. He's united the southern tribes into one unified kingdom with the south. He's established his capital in Jerusalem. He's honored God by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the center of the city He's been out on these great military campaigns. He's faced off against the Philistines, the Moabites, the the Armenianites, the, the Ammonites. And after all these great victories, he's beefed up his military, placing garrisons all over the kingdom to protect the people. And this has been exhausting work. This is for the first time in 10 years, David is at a place of peace. So when the winter rains subside and the spring brought forth dry climate. It was time to move out in defense and to battle. But the Bible tells us that David stayed to rest and renew. Doesn't he deserve this? Don't we deserve this when we stop and think about it? I mean, we work hard. We toil away each week for over 40 hours. We come home, we take care of our families. We, we take care of our homes, our, our yards, our friendships. We, we crunch the numbers to pay the bills. We, we get that vacation. We get that special thing that we want. We try to take care of our bodies with work and exercise. We, we try to wade through the waters of conflict of, and work and, and, and family and relationships and, and different forms in our community we volunteer at our, our kids' school, our grandkids' school. We, we go to their sports things, we, we do the church thing. We deserve rest. We deserve some time off. A time when others can go out and fight the battles and take responsibility. So why do we get this feeling like David shouldn't be doing this? Well, there's a sound that, that could be associated with this text, and Deb, if you'll play it for us. The sound that should be associated with this text. It is that sound right there. Is there anything inherently wrong with David staying behind when the army went off to battle? Well, no. But for the king to remain removed from the battlefield was not disgraceful in itself, except the fact that David, as he grew older, he did this. But the problem is David is not old. He's still very young. You know, by the age that Alexander the Great hit 32, he had conquered the known world. And and, and literally, he had had fought hundreds of of battles. And he had all these soldiers around him. Yet, even to the day he died, it is said that Alexander fought at the front lines with his men. In fact, it's said that Alexander typically would lead the charge against whatever army they were trying to conquer. And so he was beloved by his men for this fact. And while David had all these generals that he could send out, while he had all, all these people that he could do it, he actually had no reason to stay behind in Jerusalem. That was the job that God had ordained him to do. He was chosen to be king to rule the people, to fight their battles for them. So David, while he might have deserved it, there is a reason we're going to learn that he stayed back from battle. He's going to fight a different kind of war in our passage than he least expected. Now, during the few months of the coronavirus pandemic, Hollywood has uh, had difficult decisions to make. Either they will delay the release of their big movies or they'll put them online for streaming platforms. And one particular movie that released right before the COVID-19 crisis really hit was The Invisible Man. This is a new take on that classic 1933 uh, horror film that, that is about a doctor who finds the ability to disappear and to reappear as he wants to. In the 2020 edition, uh, a woman is haunted by the invisible presence of what she thought was her previously dead and very abusive husband. It's this unseen terror that that ridicules her life. See, what David doesn't recognize is that while his army is all fighting enemies far away, there's another enemy inside the palace that he didn't expect, that he didn't see. What David didn't realize that he would face off against is his inflated ego. Now, I'm not referring to the the psychological term of ego coined by Freud. I'm talking about the more colloquial use of ego. Did you know that the literal uh, literal English translation of the Latin word is I? I? David was inherently set up for egotism. He was the giant slayer. He was God's chosen king. He was the conquerors of enemies in great cities. He was the unifier of the kingdom. He was God's worshipful champion. As Frederick Nietzsche put it, whenever I climb, I am followed by a dog called Ego. You see, I think for most of us, including myself, we want to park this kind of sermon right here because we don't want to believe that we have any form of ego in our lives. When we hear the word ego, we think of the worst possible terminology. We hear narcissism, self-centeredness, self-absorbed, and we we get offended and we want nothing to do with the invitation to introspectively consider our lives and how we might fit into the story. And so I'll use myself as an example for this. I've had a pretty good run at things for the last 20 years. I was a successful athlete and lettered in two sports. I dated a captain of the cheerleading squad for almost all four years of high school. I got really good grades in college and, and coasted into a master's degree. I, I started a new campus ministry. I, I won the heart of a pretty awesome girl that I then married. I, I excelled in creating ministries at First Baptist Church of Clayton. I started a church um, at the age of 26. I was given the reins of CBF's Fastest growing initiative in the church start initiative when I was 29. I created a now global podcast with over 40,000 touches per week. I did that at the age of 32. I have two beautiful girls at home. I'm the pastor of University Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. In September, I started a doctoral degree in leadership and global perspective. You know, I have a lot of reason to think very highly of myself. And I think if we were all to take a step back from the easily offended ledge so that we could introspectively reflect on ourselves and talk about the challenge that comes with ego, the literal I. Every one of us, if we're honest, could come up here and talk about all the ways that we are great, all of the things that we've accomplished, just looking out in. Our crowd this morning, and and knowing who's watching online, there are more degrees and successful businesses represented within our common community. But that's where often our misunderstanding of egotism takes place. Success does not mean self-centeredness or self-absorption. You see, like David, we live in a world with a proclivity towards egotism. Everything about our world is centered around us consumerism, capitalism, all around our personal success and satisfaction. It's ingrained within us that we live in a country that declares that we are in the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The adage is supported by the endless resources that are given to us. See, the ego often shows itself in the aura of superiority. I'm I'm better than them because I am or I have done the ego craves attention and control and preservation and self-interest. The ego lacks gratitude because it would be admitting that someone else did something to put us in the place that we've been successful. And at its most basic form, egotism is driven by the thinking of, of highly of oneself. It's perpetuated in the actions and the mentality that we live with each day. You see, Plato compared uh, ego to the chariot of two horses. One horse is enlightened higher impulses. The other horse is irrational passions. And the charioteer is logically a part of our soul that tries to keep the horses from pulling apart, splitting them into two different paths. And what we find with David in our story in verse 2 is that ego can lead to self and others' destruction. It says this in verse uh, 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of this palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Well, this story just got interesting. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent the messenger to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. You see, the thought of absence from the battle was was a harmless thing, David thought. He, he could relax. He could take a break from work. He deserves this. Again, he's the king. And after an afternoon nap, David was restless the evening on his roof, and he looked down, and he, well, he saw there was a woman bathing in eyeshot of the palace. That wasn't his fault that she was bathing right there. But it certainly was his choice to take action upon those things. And seeing this woman wasn't a crime. I mean, she was right there for him to see. But what began to change in this is that David sent out a message to find out who this woman was. And he receives a message back that she is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And according to 2 Samuel 23, Eliam and Uriah... Both belong to David's elite core of loyal fighters known as the 30. So the message is understandably clear to David. This is the wife of two of your most loyal men. One of your loyal men, one who happens to be her father. But apparently David's level of respect for these two men goes beyond his next choice in action to bring Bathsheba into his house. One author put it, the ego's job is to kill everything but itself. You see, ego disregards others. The mindset of getting what you want, when you want it, no matter who it hurts and what it takes, it becomes easier and easier over time. We we want to be right. We want to be heard. We we want to get our way to to get that job, to get that promotion, to gain that friendship. And, And how often we don't consider is how it affects others around us. But it's not just its effect on others David's ego also goes much deeper. Do you remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? His answer is profound because it's so simple. He says that we should love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And you see, if if David's ego is inflated to the point of disregarding his neighbor, mistreating even the people who are most loyal to him, then what does that tell us about his perspective of God? You see, the ego undervalues God. Let's start with the amount of God's laws that David broke was adultery and and coveting and all those things. There is endless laws within the Old Testament about those things alone. But then there was more unique laws about Bathsheba and David and how they broke her monthly purity. But, But breaking of God's laws is just symptomatic of a greater issue. David's downright and disrespectful self-centered and egotistical nature towards god why was david so willing to throw away what god had given him for such a cheap thrill and if he really desires what god desires then why would he not follow in god's way you see entitlement and egotism spits in the face of god it takes another man's wife Even if that man is someone who's faithful to you and David was not grateful for the opportunities that God had given him He believed that he deserved more because of what he had accomplished This is no man after God's heart And when David is not after God's heart the grimness of the story only gets worse I don't have to explain to you what happens when a man loves a woman But then Bathsheba comes to him with a simple message. I'm pregnant. Oh And so David does two things. He puts two and two together and realizes, well, by the time Uriah gets back from the battlefield, there is no mathematical equation I can do to make this seem like this is his child. And so he invites Uriah to come back from the battlefield. And he thinks simply, well, I'm going to bring Uriah back. He'll stay in his house. He'll stay with his wife. All this will be solved. Except Uriah refuses to go home out of dishonor towards his fellow men who are still at the battlefield. As if the theme wasn't obvious for Uriah's righteousness, his name literally means, my light is Yahweh. So the man after God's own heart is consumed with darkness, while the man he is wronging is consumed with God's light. And David tries a second time. He tries to get Uriah drunk, eventually hoping that he would push him into his home. But it says that Uriah refuses to go home again, but again sleeps among David's servants. So David's ego pushes him off the deep end. Since this isn't working, David decides to go mafia style and have Uriah offed. And so David sends Uriah back to Joab, carrying a letter with this deceitful plan. The narrator tells us in 2 Samuel that he continues to show the honorable nature of Uriah because Uriah didn't even know, he didn't even have the dishonor within him to open the very letter that was condemning him to death. Because in the letter it tells Joab to send Uriah to the front lines. The man is killed, and after a time of mourning, David took Bathsheba as his wife. See, apathy and entitlement and lust and adultery and lying and destroying two marriages and enabling others to lie for you and premeditated murder. Who would have thought all these things would come from a king that we learn from the scripture says is a man after God's own heart. But all of this murderous nature of David began because he simply didn't go off to do what he was called to do. He thought he had become so successful, he had done so much in his life, that he was deserving of whatever he desired. And ego paralyzes effects to our common sense. And what begins as something so small and innocent and unnoticed by others can build and build into something irreversible and destructive in our lives. As the great Eckhart Tolle put it, when people are taken over by self-centeredness, To such an extent, there is nothing else in their mind except ego. They can no longer feel or sense their humanity, what they share with other human beings, or even the other life forms on the planet. So there is no identity with the concept in their minds that other human beings can become a concept as well. You remember that great Greek myth, Icarus? It, born into slavery on the island of the Minotaurs, Icarus' father is trapped by King Minos, who had him build a labyrinth to, to trap the Minotaurs into his kingdom. And, and struck, uh, inside the, the labyrinth, uh, Icarus' father knew that there was no way out, and since he, he built the maze, the king would not let him leave. And so he constructed two sets of wings from bird feathers and forged them together with wax. But before they took off to escape from the island, Icarus' father warned his son not to fly too high. But Icarus, in the elation and the rush of escaping into freedom, flew too close to the sun. The wax and his wings melted, and the boy plunged to his death. You see, like Icarus and like David, our ego can take us too close to the sun. Maybe without realizing it, our, our ego's... They never see fault in themselves. It becomes too easily to shift the blame onto someone else because we can explain it off that way. But ego causes us to dev- devalue others, their worth, their say, their rights, their dreams. Ego causes us to lie and mislead so that we can stay on top and be right. The ego neglects the needs of others looking out for our own best interests. And the ego drives us only to think in wins and losses. And the ego seeks to be right in all things, even if it means that we contradict ourselves and isolate ourselves unto others as if we live on an island. As one author put it, the ego is only an illusion, but a very influential one. Letting the ego illusion become your identity can prevent you from knowing your true self. Ego, the false idea of believing that you are what you have and what you have done, is this backward way of assessing and living life. Or I like how Anne Lamott put it, whenever the world throws rose petals at you, which is thrill and seduce of the ego, beware. The cosmic banana peel is suddenly going to appear underfoot to make you know that you should not take yourself so seriously. So what? What's the moral of this story? Why did Andy choose to include in this series about great obstacles, ego? Because we all want to talk about that, right? This is typically when our ego really shows itself because it believes that the message from the story that God wants us to think poorly of ourselves, that we shouldn't have anything, that we should live poor, pious lives. The great Greek uh, philosopher put it this way, it's impossible to learn what you think you already know. See, this is what got David in trouble in the first place. This is supposed to be a man after God's own heart, but he thought he knew what was best for himself. Stay at home, let the army go fight the battles for me, despite that that's my role, spy on a woman that's bathing, sleep with that woman, have, have her husband off and great mafia hit. It'll all work. And the first step in overcoming ego in our lives is to realize that we don't know it all, but to trust in one who does. You know, it sounds really simple and really cliche, but God knows what's best for our lives. This is the thing that we call the Bible. There's literally hundreds of thousands of people who who recognize this very fact. And they might have wrestled with God. They might have run from it. They might have had to learn hard lessons to get there. But they came to this life-altering realization that God is truth. And wisdom and God gives us God's Word as a guiding truth as a mirror to hold up to our lives to help us see who God desires for us to be and instead of being a person who is led by self-interest at the expense of others and our very soul God desires for us to be a person of grace and gratitude and contentment and humility seeking out the best interest of others not just ourselves And David's story leads us to a hard place of of recognition and and contrition and repentance. He changed because of this moment. He changed because God filled him with truth and wisdom of what he had done wrong. David knew that there was a heart issue with him, and, and God chose to transform his heart into something that was good and noble and true, away from this marred nature of egotism. But what is the point of the reality if, it, if we don't do anything with it? Knowledge of God's knowledge must lead to trusting action. We can't just say that we believe in God's word. We can't just say we believe in God, but not actually take action on what God has called us to. David could not change the fact that he had killed Uriah. But he could change how he lived from that point forward caring for Bathsheba, never taking advantage of other people again, seeking to be a fair and just king. And through Jesus, God desires to show us a way that we ought to live. But as James puts in his letter, what good is it for us to hear the word of God, but do not do what it says? Instead, the wise see the vibrancy of God's words and are blessed by doing what it calls us to Instead of us reading Jesus' words that blessed are the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, we strive to actually live out these things as we follow Jesus. As great Carl Jung put it, the first half of life should be devoted to forming a healthy ego. The second half of life is going inward and letting go of it. You see, the journey of following Jesus is not just a belief in Jesus— but an ongoing pursuit of becoming more like him. Jesus takes our greatest inhibitions, like egotism, and transformed them into something better. And for this to happen, belief must turn into action. See, beating egotism is is, is very difficult in our life. It's like sweeping a floor. If you sweep a floor once, You know the dust and the dirt are coming the next day. So you have to continually keep sweeping that floor, knowing every single day is a battle against our will and our desire for self. Now, the egotist would say, well, just buy an iRobot vacuum and let it take care of itself. But Jesus invites us to something different. From our scripture this morning, we see a remarkable invitation to overcome ourselves that invisible enemy that we least expect. We are created by a God who is not in some distant cosmos seated on a throne. Instead, God is present in our lives, equipping us to face whatever comes our way. And this morning, may we have the courage to dump David and his ego, choosing to follow Jesus as we boldly step forward beyond life's greatest obstacles. For our reflection this morning, we invite you into a quiet space of contemplation. Enter into a time of praying and speaking with God about how God is speaking to you this morning.